beauty is objective. Beauty is objective. It's not simply a matter of taste. Our world is very cloudy in its reasoning, and it promotes such sinful debauchery in our particular culture that there's no tolerance for the reality of true objective beauty. Everyone wants to say, oh, it's just preference. This is not true. And it kills our culture so much that it can't escape this truth because it's not just a known reality, it's a felt reality. When a husband loves and sacrifices and rules his family like Christ does the church, the feminists rage against the patriarchy and then yet at the same time can't figure out why they want it. (laughs) A man in our society who has no worldview at all to support marriage and even maybe principally open or uh, predisposed to be open to an open marriage, as they call it, longs for the exclusive commitment of his spouse. This is because there is real beauty in a godly marriage, just as there's real beauty in a diamond, which is created by pressure in the earth. It has a a different story that's brought it it about, and it's much better than the lab-grown diamonds, I'll tell you that much. I don't know if any of you men remember, but I remember uh, buying my wife's ring. I must have been, how how old was I, Dad? So I was at 20, something like that. Uh, I was 20, and and, uh, I I bought the band, and then I bought the ring, and I remember, uh, or I bought the diamond in a different place, because the one that I was at could not afford that. And, uh, And they put it in a black cloth, and that thing shimmered, and I felt like, uh, who's it, what's his name, Gollum, my precious. It was beautiful. It, 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 it is truly beautiful. There, there's, I, I'm not much for jewelry, but it was gorgeous. This had a shimmering glory, and it's objective. It, it, it can't be argued with. It's felt internally. Um, and what we see in the resurrection and the mercy of Christ and all that we'll look at today, when we get a, a sight of the true beauty of Christ and his work, the gospel, it produces in our hearts passionate zeal so that we might obey in faith. And so where we're going today is this. I'm desiring to show the theme of resurrection in First Peter and how he lays it out. Um, And the goal, if you want an objective for listening, the goal is to inspect how Peter by the Spirit presents the doctrine of Christ's resurrection and its specific relation to us. Doctrine of the resurrection and how that relates to us. That's what we're going to try to do. Um, Why is that important? Or why is it important to do something like this? Um, That's because we don't encounter Scripture in a, in a vacuum, or I think a better picture, in, a, in like a sterile laboratory. The doctrine of the resurrection isn't just this bare, flat fact to be understood, uh, but rather it is a part of the central work of the triune God who elects and redeems a people for himself. That means for all of us who are in Christ— the resurrection is a, is a part of not only the fabric of history, but really the fabric of, of our very own story. It's part of our history. 
It's part of what should become our tradition. It is part of something that uh, I'm a character in God's bigger story and I'm transformed by it. It it impacts me and shapes who I am. We're reading a a series uh, with our family called the Wing Feather Saga and there are impactful stories and things that happen that even shape us and it's a fictional story and this is ever more true when it comes to the gospel real history which really changes us so even further than this the truth of these realities that we'll look today are in the context of pastoral encouragement that should really strike you that the way in which God has decided to reveal them is in an encouraging fashion by somebody who is appointed as as a leader who is saying, come this way, think this way. This is how the resurrection changes you. Not as um, an overbearing Lord primarily, but an elder brother and a friend and, and a beneficiary of, of somebody who has received the same sort of grace that you has. Peter, he may be an apostle, but nonetheless, he is of the same salvation that, that you are a part of. And as a representative, he tells us in an encouraging pastoral sort of way how the resurrection matters today and for the rest of our lives. So with that said, and setting you up, let us just read 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5 again, and we'll spend a lot of time in this one, and we will move on uh, a cu- two other texts in this section and show how this is done. Verses 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So first, let's just see, Peter begins by blessing God, um, and let's see how he connects that uh, to the resurrection. First, by blessing, we do mean laud. He he, he, uh, applauds, he praises God for his worthiness. He, He glorifies him for his grace. He attributes to God in words, what he worthily deserves because of his actions. That's that's what it means to bless him, not to give him something he doesn't have, but to appreciate him for who he is, to honor, to glorify, to praise him. We notice that Peter um, has received something that is new birth, which we'll talk about in a second, but he praises God for the way in which he has brought this gift about. So Peter has received something and God has undertaken to benefit him in a particular way. And that is, in the words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And the first thing that we notice and think about when we talk about resurrection is that the glory of this acts lands just very simply in the immense power that it takes to work a resurrection. Don't know if you've ever seen anybody resurrected before. I certainly haven't. And if I have, I don't think they're actually dead probably. But the force of death is one that crushes the strongest and greatest, greatest of men like a soda can under the foot. None of us has the strength to endure it. And at some point or another, we will all succumb to its power. But the resurrection of Christ bears this power. That is, that it, it expels him from death into life. Uh, simply the powerful effect of it is glorious, but there are several reasons more glorious because a resurrection and escape from death temporarily um, is seen in the past in the history of the scriptures, but this is much greater. First, I have, let's see, I have four of these. First, why is it, what's, what's greater than the power of the resurrection? Well, first thing is that it's sourced in God's mercy. You'll notice in verse three, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Our new birth, being born again, is not from us. It is not sourced in us. It does not originate in us. We are recipients of a gratuitous gift. And the gift was given without us doing anything at all, meeting any preconditions at all. In fact, mercy implies that God held back and stayed what it is we deserved for the punishment of our sins. And instead, out of Sheer mercy lavishes his kindness on us based upon nothing in you but his son's excellence and glory. Even more than this, as you contemplate yourself and I contemplate myself, there's no way to even tally the number of transgressions that I have. They exceed the capacity of any to count or in all the computers and all the face of the world, there's no computer processing power that can calculate the infinite punishment for sin that we call hell, that the Bible calls the lake that burns forever with fire. So Peter extols the magnificent mountain of God's mercy, which has landed upon us. And God has motivated himself Not because something foreseen in you, but out of sheer compassion and mercy that he sends his son. This is why the resurrection is is great, because it is one that is merciful. Secondly, death is overcome by new birth. What do I mean? What God accomplished through Christ's resurrection is in these words in the text. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The conservative church today is very familiar and used to the doctrine of justification. That is, at one time we are sinners, and then 
by God's mercy and, and by faith in Christ, we are made right with God and are judicially counted as not guilty and not even just not guilty, but righteous all on the basis of Jesus. That's justification. It's, it's a legal declaration. But Peter doesn't touch that at all. He actually touch, touches the thing that's logically before that. He touches on the thing that we call regeneration, new birth. So re, again, generate, to be born, regeneration, born again. That's how you say that. So if you say I'm a born again Christian, you mean I'm regenerated. Um, that's what you mean. The power of Christ's resurrection is extended to us by the Spirit of God at a particular point in time. And what is produced is this miraculous impartation of new birth from the dead. See the correspondence there between Christ being, we even sang it today this way, being born again from the dead. As we read in Ephesians 2, especially, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And God made us alive together with Christ. Everyone in Christ, by virtue of the resurrection, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I ask, do you know your history? Do you know your history? At one time, you were dead in Adam, but in a historical act of God's kindness towards you, you have been reborn into the family of God. You have left being a child of disobedience and have undergone an internal spiritual transformation that makes you a child of the living God. Second reason the resurrection is great is because the new creation surpasses the old and is in us. That's what God has done in every single Christian. Thirdly, the resurrection secures a living hope. So you, you see this very clearly. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse four, as he said, to a living hope, he adds it by a way of analogy to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you. We'll cover that in just a second. <clears throat> but why does Peter call it a living hope? Living hope. The reason he does so is because God has bestowed on us life. That's why it's living. It's been made alive. We, we have received something that is essential to life. Um, and this is not just the ordinary extension of life. Everybody in the world, by common grace, is extended life from day to day. But what is being talked about is life that is, that is different from your natural life. That is, what is born in you, born again in you, by the Spirit of God, cannot die. 
And that thing, which continues on, is the life that we're talking about. All of us really should expect to physically die still. But in Christ, you die as an heir of the grace of life. Chapter 3, verse 7, exhortation to husbands about their wives. Grace of life, heir of the grace of life. This is the same thing that he's talking about, inheritance of what? Life imperishable. So when we die, even now, there is an inheritance to be had for us. That is, we are going to enter into our hope and that inheritance which we receive is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade. That is because it is life itself that we've received. So Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Dying you shall not die. That is because being born again is the impartation of new life. And therefore it secures for us a hope in the future. Thus, the final result for, for which we call it hope is because it is gloriously desirable and it's objectively true. It's objectively beautiful. The, these things are the case. The, the resurrection is not laughable. It's glorious. It's real. And it transcends all other desires. Fourth reason the, the nature of its security. Now, this has subpoints. One, two, three subpoints. Uh, what is the nature of our security? So, we are told that we have, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a reality that took place in history, God accomplished something. And so, in that accomplishment, Peter says, Your hope in the future is absolutely secure based upon this event in the past. We live in between here, right? If you're visualizing it on a timeline, Christ died, resurrected. You live here, ends here, but your hope over here is secure. All of it's guaranteed through faith by his grace. So what's the nature of that security? Because we have an aspect. We still live. We still believe. There's an aspect of our participation here now. And so how does he say that? that? That's verse four and five. We've been born again to a living hope that is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So first of all, there's just a theological note that must be made the accomplishment of Christ, that is his resurrection, results in life for us. And it does so because we are united with him. It, it doesn't, there's no way to get it from him to us unless we are part of his body. Marriage is a picture of this. The one flesh union is a picture of what Christ has done. He has, he has taken on humanity. That is, he has taken on a people to himself, to live in their place, to die in their place, to resurrect in their place. 
He is a, a, a part of us in a real true sense so that we can hear Paul say elsewhere, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are his and he will not have it any other way. And the two notes that Peter also makes here in two other phrases is that it is this living hope is kept in heaven for you. That is, God's spirit testifies that the resurrection has fixed in a permanent way our inheritance in heaven. And the reason it's in heaven is because there's no machinations of men that can pilfer it and steal it. There's no corrupt tentacles of government that can take it from the bank account, uh, which the Father has set up because of Christ and his payment. It, it is there under lock and key from the King of Kings. It's untouchable and unassailable. Secondly, it's we, by God's power, it says, are kept through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. You see, our faith originates in the Spirit's unlimited strength as he moves upon the heart, whereby he causes in us faith to spring up. This faith that we have ultimately is is sourced in God. Faith, though it's our response to God is, uh, is, is a response. It doesn't originate in us. It is the movement of grace upon our hearts whereby we can see Christ, repent of our sins and believe. It is a supernatural work of grace. And so he emphasizes by, I love how, I wish, I wish we had a, a super duper literal a rendering of the Greek, because most literally it's, it's those who are by God's power guarded through faith. Through faith is an attachment. The, the main emphasis is God's power guards you. And your participation is this faith thing. Not insignificant, but just an attachment. It's not ultimate. You're not the one who produced it. It's God's power that's ultimate. And I hope from this vantage point, you can see that any theology that gives the human creature, the creature man, ultimate control, even in a small sense of whether or not they believe until the end, it's dependent on them ultimately at one place or another. All it accomplishes is producing great anxiety because you have no way of knowing whether or not your faith is such of a character so as to make it to the end. But if it is secured by God's power, then your faith will remain. It will be continuing. So on the other hand, if it's ultimately on your shoulders, Christ bore the burden this far, and it's your job through your uh, strong bearing to push it to the end, then the only thing that results from a theology like that, which is in many, many Baptist circles, especially, the only thing that results from that consistently is either fear or pride. 
Fear because you don't really know if you're going to make it. Or pride because, well, you're strong enough to do it by yourself, huh? Whereas when God is ultimate and it's by his power that I maintain faith in Christ over time, the consistent result is overwhelming thankfulness and humility. God does it. Though my part is significant and meaningful. Thirdly, uh, we move into the next section. Let me, let me summarize. Go to verse 13. Find that place in your Bible. <clears throat> and we're going to cover in this section 13 through 21. Peter, in this next section, is desiring to stir us up to hotly pursue holiness and a lifestyle of, of godliness So 13, I'm going to just read a few select verses in this section, 13, 14, 15, and 17. Just a few phrases to see the drive of where he's going. And um, this is the first book that I preached through, you know, a couple years when I came. But just as a reminder, from, from the point that we're leaving off, he continues to cover about how God is working out these things such that one day we will surely make it and and receive praise and glory and honor uh, because God even is bringing about trials and sufferings so as to produce faith in us. And then he talks about the prophetic witness, how it it pointed forward to Christ. And this is something that which angels even long to look. And so it talks about our salvation in in a holistic way from verses 3 to 12. And then in 13, there's a huge shift because at this point, very quickly in the book, he begins to um, highlight what he's driving at in the book, and that is obedience out of, out of us. He wants us to pursue God with our whole heart. So here's the few select verses. Verse 13, it says, preparing your minds for action. Literally, it, it's the picture of girding up your loins. It's like getting ready to work. Um, So it's rendered really well here. Preparing your minds for action. And then it goes on to say, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy in all your conduct. Verse 17, you can also see, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So you see, just in the select phrases there, he's really insisting that we are fully submissive to God in how we are living. And he even uses really strong language, fear God during the time of your exile. Make sure your life proves that you fear God. But how he does so in exhorting us is splendiferous. <laughs> that may be a word that I just made up, or maybe it's from a cartoon that I've seen. But he, even with the strong language, and, and I mean, there's few other words that are so um, uh, hard for us because they're so lofty. Be holy, for I am holy. That sort of language is nonetheless couched in future grace. 
Listen to verse 13, read verse 13 with me. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is here is so glorious. It's Peter teaches that we are to live as children of God And if we understand that, it doesn't lead to disobedience. If we understand who we are and what God has done, it doesn't lead to lawlessness. On the contrary, it is the promise of grace that has been secured for you in your future that enables you to live by the law of God. I'll say that again. It is the promise of grace that actually enables us to live by the law of God. That's what Peter is calling us to. To be holy as he is holy is a description of what God in Deuteronomy and many other places calls obedience to the law. People greatly misunderstand in our day. We are not under law, but under grace. And then they think that we haven't been set free to obey. That is exactly why you've been set free. You've been called so that you might be a lawful people for God. Secondly, not only future grace, but even more than this, he also roots our understanding in a couple more historical graces so that we might have hope, like, two pillars holding up future grace. So it's supported um, by historical things that have happened in our past and are holding up the thing which is our hope in the future. Think of like a, like a big, like a big, uh, I think of like a big uh, Roman or, or um, Greek, like two big old columns and then your, your hope is up here and it's being supported by these two anchor points. The first one is in 18 and 19, verse 18 and 19. He says, after calling us to conduct yourselves with fear, he says, knowing, Christian, be mindful of this, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, what's that ransom like? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, in one sense, he doesn't even even finish the sentence. He says, you're ransomed from, and he tells you what the ransom is like, but he doesn't say what you're ransomed to. The the idea is, is pretty obvious. We've been ransomed from feudal ways, and we've inherited new ways, right? We're to conduct ourselves in fear because there's a new life we've been ransomed into. That's the idea, and... <clears throat> what ransom means, if you're not used to that word, or, or redeem, some of your uh, Bible translations will say, means that Christ has freed us from our debt to sin by the payment of a price. Specifically, it's said here, the full payment of our sin debt is with his very blood. And as you know, Blood is a symbol of life. It's the life that we have is symbolized. That's why in the scriptures say, uh, you shall not eat the blood for 
the life of the animal is in it. It's a picture. God, the Father, in this way, spared no expense to purchase us as his own. Silver and gold and diamonds do not compare with the value, the surpassing value of the righteous life of the Son of God and his shed blood for us. We must acknowledge here at this point is that if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, the eternal son is just that eternal. Uh, This is the father and the son and the spirit's plan. Uh, The son went willingly to give himself up so that John, he can uh, write of Jesus. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And because I lay it down, the father is granted that I raise it up again. Christ willingly goes and pays that we might be his. Secondly, in in this section here, we also see in verse 20 and 21, um, my next point, incarnate and raised for hope. Incarnate and raised for hope. Read verse 20 and 21 with me. It says, he was foreknown, that is Christ was, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So if the first column is, well, Christ ransomed us through the payment of his death, the second one is that he he has also been resurrected. He has been resurrected. Peter called... Christians to conduct themselves in fear to an to God the Father as an impartial judge, which sounds kind of threatening to us. But he seeks right after that to balance it with realities that make us fear God in an appropriate way. If you don't fear God, like really, it's not just reverence. It's actually the Bible used like trembling and prostrating and all sorts of other words to describe this, but there is a sense, a real true sense in which there is an appropriate fear of God that we must have so that the Proverbs can say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so to have us fear, but not despair, we are told that those who trusted in God, God himself wanted to give us a, uh, the strongest assurance possible that he loves us. That is, although Christ, the plan was to bring him from all eternity, nonetheless, these believers, and by extension us, who have the revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done, have been given the most sure foundation that we could possibly have, the assurance that nothing's been spared. Christ took himself to us, died and rose for us so that when he is resurrected and ascended, there's no possible way to secure our hope any better than that. The Messiah Jesus has come and he has done it and therefore he has been crowned as king of salvation. What is a more sure sign that God is for us? 
and more than bearing our sins in his death, when he's raised and glorified as king, our hope becomes unshakable because that life and that throne is not forfeitable. <laughs> he's permanently installed as Lord of Lords or as Revelation 1 says, the ruler of kings on earth. What greater proof, you know, to the apostles, especially Peter who would have been an eyewitness to these things, what greater proof is it than parading the glorified God-man before them who just died a few days ago and now is alive? And then as they stand there, ascends into heaven after speaking about the kingdom of God for 40 days to them. There's no greater proof that God will accomplish his purposes. He already did in front of them. And it means that your salvation is as sure as his life is raised. Ever sure. Last section here before I move into application uh, 22 through 25, just right next to this. And I wish I could go through the whole book. I plan to do that. We don't have time to do that. Although time doesn't matter, does it? I don't have it in my notes, so I won't do it for you. 22, let's just read that one together and then we'll read 23 through five. <clears throat> so verse 22 says, having purified, or, or you could translate having sanctified, your souls by your obedience to the truth, faith, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So what has happened is there has been what's called a definitive sanctification. Do you guys know what sanctification means? Or to be holy, it means to be set apart, right? Fundamentally. So here, what he's saying is that we have, been, we have been definitively set apart and sanctified. We have, we've come by faith and repentance into a, a new life. We've moved away from the world and our former sins. We've left all the pleasures uh, and the accoutrements of the world, and we've come unto God. We, we've been made a part of the life that is in him. And since we've been separated from our former life, he argues, it behooves us to love those who have also joined themselves and, and been joined to Christ by the Spirit and endeavor to love one another as, as you as pilgrims make this journey of life. You are support, you're to support each other. There's a necessity for you. It's even a little bit practical in this sense, like, hey, they're coming with you. God set them apart with you. You got to love them. They're going to be there. Don't hold out. You, you love them from a pure heart. Your heart's been cleansed. You, you care about them. You love them. So this is the encouragement. That's, that's what he's driving at. But now he is going to tie this again to regeneration in a beautiful way. I think Peter does this maybe more than anybody else. And he's going to do it in a slightly different way than before so that you would understand, uh, have a full orb picture of, of what God has done. Because Jesus was resurrected, and then we were resurrected in, in a spiritual way, uh, and we call that being born again. So in 23 through 25, just, just read it so it's in your mind. Since you have been born again, regenerated, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. So Peter showed us in verse chapter 1, 3 through 5, that this new birth is received by the mercy of God because Christ has united a people to himself in his resurrection. Therefore, we are by faith resurrected and this is the life that we have. And now he makes an astounding comparison. Uh, I'll let you go look in your Bible and go to Isaiah where this applies because you're like, well, the contrast is with me. <laughs> me versus the word of God. All flesh is like grass. Peter, how does this support your argument at all? I'm flesh. I'm going to die. The word of God lives on forever. I'm not. What are you talking about? Peter here makes a contrast that's phenomenal. It really bolsters this last point, that what it means for us to be regenerate. That is, when contrasting the word and us, he's contrasting the life that we were born with. But what we have through regeneration is not of the corruption of the flesh, which cannot live forever. Uh, What has been corrupted in sin is not vitally connected with God in a way that it'll continue forever and ever and ever. But through the gospel, we have received the word and we've received it like a seed. Remember Jesus when he taught that there's a sower who scatters the seed and there are different soils. Well, one of them grows up and bears fruit to eternal life. But here, the same comparison is made. The word of God in the gospel is like a seed which has taken root in our hearts and it's been germinated. It's actually sprung up and it grows up into eternal life. The word of God that has taken root there is our vital connection to the, to the life of God. It is like, a, it is like the tree of life and revelation that drinks from the streams of water that come from God's very throne. It is sourced and supplied. What is in you, uh, as he tells the adulterous woman, John chapter 4, Jesus says this to the old, uh, adulterous woman, if you drink of me, the, the w- water that I'll give you, it'll spring up into a fountain of life. Same idea that's being communicated. Your spiritual birth, what has happened to you, is you have an imperishable nature now, a totally new thing that didn't come with your natural birth. Something in your life by the Spirit of God has caused you to likewise share in the quality of the word, which is imperishable. Therefore, you won't perish because that's where your life is. That's how you live. So I just want to, in light of these, apply just... Two main applications um, before we move into Lord's Supper. And, and I just want to exhort you uh, to do what Peter said. And I want to exhort you to obedience. Um, the first one, I'll, I'll do it in reverse order from what we've seen. <clears throat> first, we have the seed of the word. And the seed of the word 
has its, its life in the word. What I mean by that is we have been born with and into a new life. Uh, we are, in a sense, like a new tree. There's a, a new pattern of life that accords with our new nature. It should be unthinkable to you that any of us would live like the rotten, mangled tree that we were. God has uprooted it and burnt it. The idea that you should carry with you is, is that you have the seed of life in you, and that thing will go on forever, and it has a new way. It has different fruit that it bears, not bitter and poisonous, but sweet and life-giving. Picture yourself in this. And I refer you to Psalm 1, 2. You might think of yourself as a tree that way. Secondly, in terms of what the Father has done, um, the second application is, is fathers worthy of obedience have loved and do love their sons. So our Father has been merciful to us. Our Father has not... Uh, taken account of all of our sins. Our Father has granted us new life, and He sacrificed very much at His own expense to give it in His very own Son, so that we might have a, a new life, and not just started, but to be lived in a particular way. He not only has done that, but as a good Father, He secured an inheritance which you can't squander away. He's going to keep it until the end. And not only that, knowing your frame, he promises you grace. He, he's historically proven in the past that grace. And then he also says that I have more to come. You just wait and be glad about it. Who would not desire knowing who God is this way to honor and reverence and even fear him? this Father who is our God. How could any be more deserving of obedience? How could we intend to obey our own passions and our own sinful lusts rather than obeying this Father who has done it all for us in his Son, Jesus Christ? Even if we respect our earthly fathers some, which we should and are commanded to, but if we see all the reasons that they're worthy of respect, despite all of their failures, how much more does our Heavenly Father put all of our fathers to shame and deserve all of our obedience, all of our allegiance? So I, I just call you, church, to know the precious value of Christ, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, all as the means by which should stir you up to obedience. Do not detach the grace of God from the obedience that comes with the grace of God. Be a new tree. Be a child of the king. Live into the reality to which you were born into. Don't live as though your birth certificate still says whatever on the end. You've been brought into a new name, a new heritage, a new legacy. This is who you are, and we must live into that reality. Well, um, before I say any more, 
Uh, let us stop there. And I want to make an application again.